Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. This is a very special episode because we are live. We are here at Harry Tarantula Games and Comics at 6979 Young Street in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, celebrating their 25th anniversary. Let's hear it for the 25th. And we have a very special guest. He needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one because he's a local legend. He does comics like Sex Criminals with Matt Fraction. He's done Captara with Kegan McLeod. He's written Howard the Duck for Marvel. He's writing Star-Lord for Marvel from Guardians of the Galaxy. And upcoming, he'll be working on Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. This is a guy who's got more mileage out of a pseudonym than Pee-wee Herman. Give it up for Chip. Chip Zdarsky! That was the most accurate introduction of me that has ever been done. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, Chip, I want to get right into it, and I'm sure our audience does too. I guess my first question is, when did you first become aware of comics? When did comics first come into your life? Um... I'm trying to think exactly when. I have like kind of vague uh, memories of uh, a lot of Spider-Man comics when I was a kid, but the the main one was Secret Wars. Do you remember Secret Wars? I, I loved Secret Wars. Secret Wars was a comic where like all the Marvel characters were like thrown onto a planet and they had to fight each other for some reason. And uh, so many guys in my generation kind of got into comics with that one because it was like it felt like it was the first event. It was like this huge thing. And it was also the debut of uh, Black Suit Spider-Man, which eventually became Venom, right? Yeah, yeah. There's tons of stuff in in that series. Um, And uh, it was magical as a child. And as an adult, I found out that it was a, a plot to sell toys to children. They had like a deal with like, what was it, Hasbro or Mattel? I think it was Mattel, in which Mattel said to them, uh, we need a comic to promote these. Uh, we did a, a, a study of children, and the, the two favorite words of kids are secret and wars. Yeah. So you make a comic called Secret Wars. I'm like... Wow, that's uh, that's my childhood right there. And they could get lots of vehicles and different style action <laughs> yeah. figures. Like the whole 
idea that Spider-Man was in the black costume was so that they could sell more variations of Spider-Man. Turns out these comics are made by corporations. (laughs) I can't believe it. Totally, totally. (laughs) So when you were like growing up, what did your parents think of your love of comics? Were they supportive? Um, Yeah, I was, uh, you know, a lonely child. So, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in my room by myself, and uh, they were just happy that I was... I had some friends in the form of superheroes <laughs> on the on the printed page. His mom is like one of the most supportive moms I've ever met. <laughs> like she she'll like message on Facebook and write in to like when you used to write the National Post, she would write in and try to get copies and different things like that. Oh yeah, no, they're insanely yeah. supportive. Like uh, as a kid, my parents were supportive of comics because it meant I was reading. Mm-hmm. Like they were just excited that I was reading. There were pictures attached to it, but still, you know, that's something. You know, my dad drove me to Toronto when I was a kid to meet John Romita Senior. Oh nice. At like Silver Snail, they had like a Spider Man. Wedding day. They were supportive all the way till today. Every time I get a new job, they're just like, hey, way to go, way to go. And they have like a poster of like from sex criminals uh, in their kitchen, which even I wouldn't do that. <laughs> My parents in their weird trailer park seniors home in Florida. That is. Yeah. Cool. Weird stuff like that. So, how did you go from being a fan to wanting to do this for a living? When did you get the bug that you wanted to be an artist? Oh, it was a totally a fluke. Like, as a kid, I would draw my own comics. And like every kid, you would draw like two or three pages of it and just lose interest and um i later found out that that also happens to professional artists as well when they try to break in i had like there was a brief period in my early 20s where i thought i might do it and i kind of did some sample pages and i never brought them in i was like yeah clearly this life probably isn't for me but then i started doing my own comics which uh it turns out was the way to go so i worked at a university of toronto newspaper as a production editor and the year after i left the incoming editors were like oh would you like to do a comic strip for us i'm like oh i don't know maybe i pitched them a comic strip you know three panel thing called prison funnies which uh leon the owner is well aware of because i would bring copies to him all the time and it was like a dark comedy uh, newspaper strip and every week i thought they would reject it and every week they asked for another one and by the end of it i was like i could put these together into a comic i could make a real comic out of this <laughs> and so i did and like you know now it's a bit easier with uh the internet but at that stage this is about 15 20 years ago I would just like self-publish. So I'd contact the printer, I'd contact a distributor, and I would, you know, arrange all that and pay for it myself. And uh, at the end, you know, make like a couple hundred bucks and put it in my pocket. I'm like, hey, I did a comic. And uh, that kind of started my love of making the comics. Cool. And from that, I was able to get a job that helped support me at the National Post, which is uh, the uh, one of uh, Toronto's national newspapers. Yeah, Canada's national newspaper, but based in Toronto. But Toronto's national newspaper. <laughs> 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 at this point, I don't even know if you can call it a national newspaper. You know, my job there was to do graphics so like maps and stock charts and you know pointers towards where things were blowing up in the world and uh that was my main job and then i turned that into kind of a comics job like i just kept pitching them comic ideas and like journalism as comics and uh basically any chance i got to cartoon i was actually weirdly able to build a portfolio of comic-y stuff through the newspaper while doing my own comics on the side and eventually I ended up teaming up with Matt Fraction to do uh, Sex Criminals. That's awesome. So you, so basically you were doing like comics journalism. Like you would go around and like, I, yeah. did, didn't you watch like uh, 
Trudeau box, and then you got to like draw it later for Civil War, and then that's sort of <laughs> how sex criminals came to be, kind of. Basically, uh, when Trudeau had his boxing match several years ago, when he was uh, beating up that senator, which is such a weird thought now, the Post sent me on my first ever actual trip that they paid for to Ottawa to cover it, and, and part of that was to do comics about it. So I was like live sketching and taking pictures and interviewing people, doing stuff like that, and uh, I was so excited to be doing something like this uh, and being on the road and like, you know, I was on the train there and uh, super tired. And so I just like, I emailed Matt, Matt Fraction, um, who we've known each other online again, probably about 15 years. And he had a lot of success at Marvel. He was doing, well, he kind of had that, that career at Marvel where he did like Punisher and Iron Fist. And then he moved his way up to like X-Men and did a big event. And then, Hawkeye, you know, Iron Man. And then oh, Hawkeye, yeah, Iron yeah. Man. Um, and we were friends. We talked about doing stuff together. I just emailed him while I was on the train to uh, watch Trudeau beat somebody up. And I, I was like, we should do a comic. Let's just do a comic. That'd be fun. Just whatever. And I pitched him a dumb idea. And then he wrote back and he's like, what if we do a comic about a couple who, when they have sex, they stop time and then they rob banks? I was like, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, let's do this. And so the, the rest of the trip there... And then the trip back from the boxing match, I basically, uh, we just emailed back and forth and we fleshed out characters and we kind of figured out the the plot of it. And by the time I was done that trip, we basically had the whole idea for Sex Criminals and just kind of hit the ground running. That's awesome. So the initial idea, did it start out as just, uh, you know, dick jokes or... Did it and then and then develop into the sort of really amazing commentary on sex that it now is. Or? Well, first of all, I will remind you: there's children in the audience, Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> Let's okay. keep the language clean. <laughs> My um, bad. Yeah, yeah. So the initial uh, the initial idea was like you know because Matt and I were just ju- juvenile adults that we would produce this kind of like dumb, yeah, uh, sex jokes book. That would just be puns and like just us kind of letting loose in such a way that nobody would ever buy the book. But we found as we started working on it and kind of bouncing ideas back and forth, we'd have these late night phone calls where we would kind of talk about each other's like sexual experiences and like... You know, it's at midnight. I'm just like, oh, and then, you know, I lost my virginity here. And he would tell me his story and, and all these like terrible things that have happened. And so the heart of the story changed. And we started to focus on Susie, who is the main character. And we kind of realized at some point we were a little bit in love with our main character and that the story was not what we thought it was going to be. So the solicitation for the book said, sex criminals, you know, from the guys who, you know, joke, joke, fart, fart, whatever. Uh, and then... The final book was not that. It was about relationships and sexual awakening. Mm. So we thought we were dead. We thought there's no way. Because if you bought the book based on the title and the solicitation, and you got this book about relationships, you'd be like, what? This is not what I wanted. And the people that we want to buy a book on relationships would look at the solicitation and be like, I'm not going to buy that. There's no way. So we thought we were dead. We thought it would last three issues. Um, And now we're on issue 20 it's been translated into, I'd say, like maybe a dozen different countries and uh, six or seven languages now. And, you know, it's just been nuts. Like it, it took off in a way that neither of us expected. When did you get the first inkling that this was something and like this was going to be huge? There was the initial burst of it. So when we were going to announce or um, premiere the comic, 
Matt flew in. He lives in Portland. He flew to Toronto, and we were going to have a launch at a, a place called Wicked, which was a, a, an adults-only um, club for consenting adults to uh, enjoy each other's yeah, enjoy each other's company for the younger people in the audience. And so when Matt came in. We basically, we, we drove out to a comic shop to do a signing that day. And while we were in the back seat, we just kind of were checking on Twitter and everybody was talking about the book. It was like the kind of thing where you refresh Twitter and there's another hundred messages. And you're like, this is weird. And kind of by the end of the night, we were like, this might end up being something. And we found out it sold out that day. So the day it came out, it sold out and we we're going back to press. And we went to pr- pr- back to press on issue one seven times. Not including like the kind of the cheap freebies that we would also be printing up and handing out. So, uh, yeah, it was insane. The first two or three months were just like just a nut job whirlwind. And I was still working at the National Post. So like my day job was, you know, doing these graphics and things. So and and another thing notable about that launch that I remember is that like Matt Fraction got his nipple pierced. That was yeah. something that happened. Yeah, he did. He got his nipple pierced on stage while I read uh, erotica while dressed as Garfield. And it was just like. We were already up at capacity. There were 300 people in this uh, adults club. And um, my parents uh, were there as well, of course. And uh, we wanted to get them on stage to uh, to hold Matt's hand while he got his nipple pierced. And uh, we were looking at the audience. And they weren't in the audience because they were on the third floor, which is the floor for um, uh, sexual relations. Uh, that's where my parents were at the time, so they uh, they, they couldn't they couldn't help out. It was a crazy night. Like by the end of the night, and we cleared people out. Like I stripped out of my Garfield suit and I just jumped into the hot tub, which was like lukewarm. And if you're in a uh, adults club and you get into a lukewarm hot tub, it's like germs are not dying in this thing. Germs are living and and, and breeding, and it's a horrible experience. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was crazy. Two three months of just like just bonkers was that like a time that you were really thankful that you had the chip Zdarsky name because I, I know that that happened because you wanted to separate yourself from your national post work right yeah yeah it kind of it started off with um actually globe and mail because i was doing f- freelance illustration for them and uh and uh, but i was also doing stuff for the post and i did an, a, an illustration for the post slamming the globe and mail <laughs> and so i uh i got a phone call from my globe and mail editor saying what are you doing like we're supposed to print an illustration from you like tomorrow and now i can't and i was like oh if i do anything like that again i'll do it under a pseudonym and so the pseudonym arose from that but then i kind of realized also i'm like it's probably a good idea to have a pseudonym in your pocket for when you do kind of weird stuff which ended up happening when well, it became a character too right like you it wasn't just a name it was like you have a whole persona when you go out on the road at conventions and yeah stuff. yeah early on for sure because around like 2002 2001 when i started as chip Zdarsky, i was i was uh in the middle of a divorce and so like mentally i just like totally just went and just switched over to somebody else. So I'd go on the road and I put on like fake glasses and a cowboy hat and I would get drunk at every show and I would make a lot of mistakes of an adult nature. Um, again, for the children in the audience, <laughs> let them parse it. And yeah, my therapist loves this. She's like, you came up with a whole new character for the bad stuff you do in life after a divorce. And I'm like, yeah, she's like, there's a book in there for her. Like, for sure. So yeah, my real name is Steve Murray, and at that time, there was nothing really online about Steve Murray. And then when my National Post stuff kind of took off, 
uh, all of a sudden I had to be out there as Steve, which right. which kind of like killed the idea of kind of having separate worlds like that. Well, and in the meantime, you founded uh, Raid Studios, which is a studio where uh, people like Ramon Perez and Francis Manipal and all the like huge Canadian names in comics work now. Yeah, and that's because of you, sort of. It's it's a weird thing. Like uh, I realized I needed a studio, and I had I had my old high school friend was an illustrator, Ben Shannon, and we knew Kagan McLeod, who who does Captara with me now. And we we're like, oh, we should probably get a place. I'm like, wow, oh, but we need another person. And at the time, I was heavily into online dating, and uh, I kept noticing the same guy kind of uh, pop up, uh, not to date me, but as a as a competitor, I guess you could say. And it was it was Cameron Stewart. Wow. Uh, who at the time was doing Catwoman, and he's gone on to do tons of different stuff. And uh, so I didn't know him, but I sent him a message saying, um, Hey, my name's Chip. You know, I do some comics. I like... Uh, this is a message on the dating site. So I was like, I like long walks in the park, candlelit dinners, opening a studio in downtown Toronto. Do you want to go for a drink sometime? And so I basically asked him out on the dating site. And then he met Keg and Ben and I, and we all got together. We got along. We're just like, let's just do this. How do you feel about like its legacy now that it's still going even after you've it's, left? It's weird because it's a totally different vibe. Like it was the four of us that started it. And now there's like... 13 people i think in the studio like the studio space is uh larger um it feels like more like a company like they've kind of got a lot of ideas in the works they do not have oil portraits of us hanging around the studio which i think you should do for the founding members of a studio so that hurts um and they've sort of shortened the name it used to be like the royal academy it was like this big you know we had we had two names that were in the running one was the royal academy of illustration and design which we went with and caused some problems because we'd always get phone calls from parents who want to enroll their children in our studio the other one was mostly just a, a byproduct of the time there was that mel gibson movie ransom do you remember oh, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for some reason we want to call our studios uh give me back my son studios <laughs> which makes no sense at all but we just wanted to be able to like scream his line into the phone when he answered it so he's like Give me back my son! Studios, chip speaking. <laughs> but cooler heads prevailed. We also, oh, there was a third one, Wesley Snipes Illustration, which, again, made no sense. So it was probably good that we came up with uh, the RAID uh, acronym. That's awesome. So as Sex Criminals got more successful, did you find it hard to like balance the comics and your your journalism at the National Post? Yeah, yeah. Basically lasted a year of me doing both at the same time. And then I, I went on a... Uh, a book leave, like the one good thing about journalism is the fact that every journalist has a book in them, uh, and most of them are about, you know, the mafia or, you know, the identity of Canada, and mine was about sex criminals, the comic. But I was still able to take a book leave, and I did that for about four months, and at the end of it, I was like, uh, I don't think I'm coming back. Like, this is... Uh yeah, it's a little hard to do kind of both at the same time. And I miss it because, like, you know, I, I used to be able to cover elections and things like that. So whenever something happens politically, you know, I, I kind of go, ah, I want to do something. Because I kind of became their humor writer by the end. And so it was very hard to let those things go. Yeah, you'd have a field day with Trump. Oh, my God. Yeah, and Trudeau, too. <laughs> yeah, and, and Trudeau. Yeah. I ended up putting Trudeau in a comic book. Uh, it was like a Civil War two tie-in comic book, and they wanted me to do an Alpha Flight story. I'm like, maybe I should put Trudeau in there. So I ended up kind of negotiating with uh, his communications woman, and at the end of it, she was just like, you could just put him in. Like, 
we're not going to do anything. We can't give you permission because we're a government and governments can't put a stamp on a Marvel comic saying, hey, we love Marvel, but just go ahead and do it. What but apparently he signs them everywhere now. Like, yeah, yeah, I've yeah. seen photos of him just like reaching above crowds, signing his face on the comic, and he sent me a photo of uh, of him reading the comic at his desk, which was surreal. <laughs> that, that's crazy. It comes full circle because you were at the original boxing match. So I know, and it turns out like he yeah. knows who I am, which is also weird because like I, I had somebody come up to him and say that they they knew me and he said to them you know steve and they're like uh yeah he's like yeah it took me a while to figure out the steve chip connection i'm like oh that is so weird <laughs> that even the prime minister has a thought about you lock your computers <laughs> yeah there's something going you're on CSIS target right yeah, now i don't like it at all <laughs> it's crazy so with sex criminals like did you start getting other work from marvel i mean howard the duck came quickly mm. after that right yeah yeah maybe about a year year and a half after uh, sex criminals was out there was an editor at marvel named will moss and he actually bought monster cops which was an all-ages comic i did on my own uh years before uh at san diego so he knew my stuff before sex criminals and then he was in charge of an anthology of um to do with original sins which was like a marvel event from a couple years ago and he asked me if i wanted to do like a two-page gag comic i was like oh yeah like i've never worked for marvel this is crazy kind of blowing my mind so i did a comic which had like as many characters i could get in there you know as many jokes as i could fit in just to like say that i did it there you go i drew storm and luke cage and spider-man and i'm done but then like maybe a month later Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie came out, and the same editor emailed me. He's like, hey, did you see Guardians of the Galaxy? I'm like, yeah, yeah, pretty good. He's like, yeah, did you stay to the end? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you see Howard the Duck in there, eh? I'm like, uh-huh. He's like, I think we could pitch a comic to the guys upstairs. I'm like, really? Is that how that works? Like, <laughs> all you need is like two seconds of screen time, and you might get a comic? So, yeah, so I pitched the comic, and... uh unbelievable to me but it was accepted and uh and it started me on this weird road with marvel so once you started working for for marvel did you have to like change your process for doing comics because it gets a little more monthly and a little more crazy right well yeah at that point i'd never written a comic for somebody like anytime i did a comic it was just me doing it uh or i was drawing a comic based on matt's script so all i knew were matt's script so that was my template so i looked at his scripts i'm like how does he do this how does he format it because i have no idea and yeah and then they pitched they pitched me joe canonis the artist and i'm like oh he's amazing and so i had this weird thing where like i would write the script and i'd send it to him and i have an idea in my head of what it should look like and then i get it back and it's not what i thought it was going to look like and it was usually much better uh which made me feel like a very bad artist well uh, and your howard was really interesting because it's it's different from like the very bad movie that's like so bad it's good yeah it's also different from the sort of political satire that the original yeah. creator came up with but you got to put some send-ups for the movie in there and do a lot of uh, crazy stuff with that yeah it was it was an interesting assignment because i was a fan of the original steve gerber who created howard the duck you know he did the first uh the first run which is kind of everything um and it was it was like a lot of satire and was satirizing kind of popular culture at the time and uh things that were happening in the world in the, like the late 70s so when it came time for me to do it i didn't want to copy him because like that would feel weird like a like a simulation of of steve gerber but you still want a bit of satire in there. But 
the weird thing is like back then to satirize pop cultures like he had like kung fu movies in there and like kind of like kind of like pseudo hippie movements and stuff um but pop culture now is marvel yeah like it's superhero stuff yeah. so my idea was to have like howard no longer stand out in this world where he's inundated with superheroes and supervillains and, and stuff like that like all the time so the 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 satire is about what marvel and dc are doing and by the end of the run it kind of came around to the idea of like the creators kind of being in charge of this stuff but not being in charge of this stuff yeah yeah one of my favorite things in howard the duck was how you got to sort of play in the marvel sandbox and like you bring in other heroes and you yeah. brought in like a really insecure version of spider-man <laughs> yeah and all of a sudden you're working on a spider-man book that's coming out in like june so i don't know if you can talk about it but uh it's as surreal did, to me as anyone else did they let you use your insecure version of spider-man or do you have to kind of play with the main company confident spider-man it's a little bit of both so like the joke in Howard the Duck was uh, whenever Spider-Man appeared, uh, it always appeared that he'd let somebody die. And so he always goes, oh, no, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben. And he just like collapses into a puddle of, uh, of crying and being inconsolable, which I was always surprised that Marvel let me get away with it because that stuff has to get passed through that office. Like anytime I put Spider-Man in a script, the Spider-Man office has to look and, and sign off on it. So I, I thought I'd just get that one shot at it in issue one, then they'd fire me. Uh, but then they just kept kept letting me go. And so by issue, I think, seven of Howard, like I'd had Spider-Man appear like three or four times and uh, I'd gotten so used to writing him and uh, at, at his heart, he's a, he's a super funny character. And yeah, and I think they, they saw that. And they saw that like the version that I was writing was maybe closer to the original feel of Spider-Man, very yeah, hard like luck. Yeah, the Ditko hard luck version? Yeah, uh, yeah. Not as angry as a Ditko version, but like... But they, they, they knew I had the sense of humor for it, and they knew at that point that I could write superhero stuff because I started up Star-Lord. And I thought I think they just thought, like, why not? Let's, let's, let's try Chip out on a book. Yeah, and Star-Lord is interesting, too, because it's... I mean, Star-Lord is from Guardians of the Galaxy, so you think it's going to be space, yeah. but immediately you make it street level. And Yeah, that's one of the things of working at Marvel is you have to deal with what's happening in Marvel at the time, mm -hmm. both the company and within the, uh, the continuity of the books. So at that period, they were like, hey, we want you to write Star-Lord. I'm like, oh, that, that'd be cool. He's like, but he's on Earth. I'm like, okay, all right. That's that's a different take. And then they revealed, you know, what was going to happen uh, with Civil War Two, and that uh, Bendis was going to be having the Guardians on Earth for at least an arc. I kind of like working within those restrictions because the newspaper was a lot of that, mm -hmm. like you space restrictions, family friendly restrictions, you know, political restrictions here and there. So uh, the the challenge is interesting to me. So I. I was like, okay, sure. And and then I realized that it's essentially I'm just writing Howard the Duck all over again because it was like Howard was like the stranger from a strange land trapped in a world he never made. And Star-Lord is exactly that as well. He's like, oh, I haven't lived on Earth since I was a teen. What's Earth all about? Mm -hmm. Except he's much handsomer. Yeah, it, it's it's really crazy. Like the Star-Lord, Star like you seem to really thrive with the quirky characters. What is your like what do you like about them? Well, first of all, the uh the idea of like almost any Marvel character not being quirky. <laughs> like if I saw anyone dressed like that in the street, I'd think they're quirky. So I think just in my hands the characters are kind of naturally quirky because that's that's just how they should be, I yeah, think. Yeah. It's very hard to take a lot of those characters super seriously. 
And in between all that, you were working on like Jughead yeah. and Captara. Yeah. What about Captara? Is that completed, or are, is is there things coming up with that? You work on no. that with Kagan, right? Yeah, yeah. So Captara was kind of my love letter to He Man, and I wanted to do it with my friend Kagan McLeod, who was an illustrator of the National Post and one of the original Raid members. And uh, he's just, he's such an amazing artist. And so we did that through Image. And we got through the first five issues. And I think he just kind of crashed. Like, I don't think he realized how hard a monthly comic was. Because um, he's used to doing illustration work. So the choice between doing uh, an illustration of a woman doing a yoga pose for a magazine for $1,000. Or doing a page of a comic, which is seven illustrations featuring recurring characters and backgrounds for a third of that. When you have two kids and a studio and a home, it's like the, the, the yoga pose generally comes first. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. So basically when we wrapped issue five, I gave him the script issue six. So it's been about a year and a half, I'd say, since he's received that. So every time I see him, which is like almost every week, he's like, I'm working on it. I'm like, okay, all right. You know, I get asked that a lot. Like when I do conventions, like every second person yeah, wants it, volume two. And I'm like, Kagan's working on it. Send so, your messages to Kagan. Somebody actually asked us that question on Instagram. Like oh, they yeah. want to know, like they're hungering for... Yeah, I mean, there are pages. I've seen the pages, but uh, it's just a matter of... Um, it's tricky with image. Like, at Marvel, the deadline's the deadline. Like, if you're not going to do it, then they'll kick you off the book and somebody else will do it. Whereas at image, the deadlines are up to the creator, which is both good and bad. Like, you know, Sex Criminals, Captara, we have total control over our product. Mm-hmm. How it goes out there, when it goes out there, um, the price of it, the paper we use, like, it's all up to us. Um, but also you can really fall behind on a schedule because there's nobody at image going, Hey, where is this? If you don't get this uh, to us in time, we're going to put somebody else on the book, right. but they can't. It's a creator own book. Well, and Captara, for those who don't know, cause it might be one of your lesser known books. It's, it's like this, uh, the guy who gets trapped on a planet and it's sort of, it's sort of like the gay he man sort of situation, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the initial idea was from a pitch I, I had years ago, which was about, um, well, like when you were a kid and you would play with toys, like you'd have Star Wars toys, you'd have He-Man toys, G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, whatever. And they weren't like pure in the sense that you just played with these characters here or these characters there. They all interacted like, mm-hmm. you know, Spider-Man would be fighting a G.I. Joe if you were playing with those those action figures. And I like to picture a planet where that was possible, where... There's different like continents and islands where the My Little Ponies live and the Transformers live and like the He-Man characters live, and so that's that was kind of the the genesis of Captara. Right, but of course you couldn't use those characters, so you just no. made your own versions of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, most of them are kind of analog. Some of them are kind of a bit more original creations, but uh, yeah, it's just fun to filter it through kind of a, the lens of an adult and uh, a bit of a Wizard of Oz journey throughout that planet. And you also work for Archie Comics, right? Which <laughs> yeah. is sort of the the other behemoth of comics if you're not into superheroes everybody has read archie whether they're into comics now or not yeah so what did you think that you could bring to to jughead and how did you identify with him 
uh, I got that job in a weird way. They were announcing the relaunch with Mark Wade and Fiona Staples of Archie itself. And I used to read Archie and love Archie. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited about this. So I contacted the guy I knew there. He was a PR guy. And I was like, could I do a cover? Like, I just want to do a variant cover. And he's like, yeah, of course. Then he's like, maybe something else, too. I'm like, oh, really? And so I got a call from the Archie president, which is a weird thing to say. The Archie president and the Archie Oval Office. Goldwater? <laughs> no, no. The, uh, that's a publisher. The president is Mike Pellerito. Okay. And this guy named Mike called, and he was like, yeah, we were, we, we want to launch a Junket series. And we had a lot of writers' names kind of being uh, batted about. But then, you know, Alex mentioned you, and it just clicked for us. Because you act like Jughead, like in your, in your daily life. <laughs> I'm like, What? And he specifically referenced a thing I did a couple of years ago, which was I had an online interaction with my local Applebee's, um, which was very pleasant. Like, it was very polite back and forth between us. And uh, it got picked up by BuzzFeed and became a thing. Like, a million people saw that. And that weekend, I got phone calls from magazines and uh, radio outlets across the world. Like, I'm like, I'm on NPR talking about Applebee's, about burgers, basically. And so the Archie people saw that. They're like, oh, that's such a Jughead stunt. It was, like, weirdly family-friendly. And it was about burgers. And it got a, a huge press. We should hire this guy to write Jughead. Well, but it's also like you have a very specific sense of humor. Like, where do you think that comes from? Is that your fa- is that your family influence or? Um, maybe my family was very uh, cool with letting me and my brother make fun of my dad. So we, basically, we'd sit down at the dinner table and we just make jokes about dad almost the entire time. And he just sits there like, "Oh boy, oh you kids, oh boy." And if we try to make fun of mom, she'd just shut it down and she'd redirect it to dad. Um, so they were like super supportive of that. And, you know, I grew up with, like, Monty Python, Kids in the Hall, SCTV, Saturday Night Live, all those kind of shows that kind of influenced me. And, you know, uh, Archie Comics, it's a very specific type of humor, obviously all ages, and I want to inject a bit more kind of personality into it, so you could read the Jughead comics and still somewhat see that it's me writing it, you know? So the big thing I did with Jughead was... Because the new Archie comics were a bit more realistic, the Archie comics I loved as a kid were the ones that dealt with the fantasy sequences. So, like, Archie is, like, a superhero, or the gang is, like, secret spies, things like that, um, which were, like, recurring kind of stories in the Archie comics. And so I wanted to incorporate those, so I made them Jughead's daydreams and fantasy. So every issue would kind of present a problem for Jughead. He'd get knocked out, go to sleep, whatever. And then he would have a dream that would be these old fantasy sequences, but, you know, recontextualize as uh, dreams in the new reality of Archie. And he'd find the solution within the dream, and, like, that's how it would affect the real-life uh, outcome. Yeah. It's an all-ages kind of setup of kind of having a problem, finding a way to deal with the problem, but, you know, filtered through my sense of humor, so... Yeah, it was a ton of fun, and it's a weird thing to write those characters, because when you sit down, you're like, all right, I'm writing an Archie script, and you're like, Jughead says this, Veronica says that. Like, everyone here in the room could probably write how those characters sound, mm. so it's it's a very uh, fluid and easy process. Have you seen Riverdale? Because that seems like its own fantasy sequence. Yeah, yeah, I got a, um, I got a kind of a sneak uh, preview of it at some point last year. And yeah, I was like, okay, no, I, I see what they're going for. And the one thing about Archie Comics now is they're a very small company. You think of Archie, you think of like Disney, you think of like this corporation, but really there's like five, six people working in that office. Like there's not a lot going on. They're not just, they're not like thriving, but they're not like, they're not going out of business immediately, but they're right on that line where just like, 
they're trying to find new ways to uh, use these characters and make them relatable. And so Afterlife with Archie, which was their zombie series, that did super well. That came out and kind of like brought the company back. And they're like, we could do whatever we want with these characters. Yeah, and now there's like a Jughead, The Hunger, where Jughead's like a werewolf now. It's like Archie meets Ramones, uh, Archie versus Predator. Like they basically, if you pitch Archie an idea, they'll probably say yes. Because they're just like, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's crazy. Sharknado. It was Archie versus Sharknado. That's a real comic. <laughs> and it's fantastic because they, they understand that these characters are now kind of their own archetypes. And so you can place them in different situations and scenarios and see how they unfold, which is, I think, brilliant. And Riverdale, the TV show, is essentially that as well. It's like, okay, well, what if these Archie characters were like super hot and they were in Twin Peaks? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, from what I can, from what I can tell, I haven't watched the rest, but uh, people love it. Yeah, yeah people love it. So you it's know, so artificially severe. I lo- yeah, I yeah. It. So God, God bless them. You know, I'm interested to see uh, how that affects the comics publishing side of it. So my final question before we open it up to the audience is: with so many books and the fact that you're so busy, how do you how do you balance everything? How do you make sure that everything comes out on time and stuff? Oh my like God, that? I gotta go. You're right. <laughs> What am I doing here? <laughs> um, well, Sex Criminals always encounters its fair share of delays. It takes me seven weeks to draw the book. And uh, part of that is because I'm penciling, inking, lettering, coloring, designing, and you know, adding jokes here and there to it. So it's more than just, you know, just doing the pencils in a book. Um, so that takes seven to eight weeks. During that period evenings and weekends are kind of the writing time so you know if i can finish a page i put it aside and i then i sit down and write it's nice having both because when you get tired of one you can jump to the other like right. i'm not the kind of guy that can just do one project if i did one project i'd lose my mind so it's it's nice to you know finish a panel of like characters making out and sex criminals and then you know go do my all ages jughead or you know go work on spider-man and every so often you're doing your own comic convention with Zadarskhan, right? Oh, yeah, Zadarskhan. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Zadarskhan is... Um, so there's Fan Expo, which is the main convention in town. And uh, I am not a... Um, I'm not a fan of them, really. It's not my kind of show. It's not my kind of organization. Uh, so I haven't done it in 15 years. But, you know, once the Sex Criminals came out and I was doing Marvel stuff, you know, there's more... Um, more people asking if I would do the show. And so I decided to just set up one here out front of Fan Expo on a trolley with a comic rack and uh, a table bolted down to the trolley with uh, my Eisner Award bolted to that table. And I just wore like a velvet jacket and uh, a friend of mine uh, who worked with a comic shop would just pull me along in the trolley while I sat there and I would sign people's comics out front. And uh, <laughs> that was my day. And it was amazing. It was fantastic. Um, I lost the Eisner Award that day. It uh, fell off the table and got dented. And then I think I left it in the rental van, which is unfortunate. And then uh, I thought Mark Wade had it. And was no, that was t- a Harvey Award. Uh, okay. But uh, but then uh, two years later, I decided to do another Zadarscon. People were like, "Oh, what are you going to do?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm not going to tell you." The day of Fan Expo, I announced it. Everyone should line up on this one street corner near the convention center. And then uh, I had uh, friends basically take 
five people at a time and I bring them up to my hotel suite because I rented a hotel suite which I had myself and like Marguerite Bennett and Ryan North and Brian Lee O'Malley of Scott Pilgrim fame we were just like all hanging out on the bed in our bathrobes and signing comics and eating cheeseburgers and it was the best convention you will ever attend it was like I don't know it was like the brothel of comic conventions it was, it was awesome you get in you get out you get your comics you leave I know satisfied. but it was like it was perfect because it was like five people at a time so it's not overwhelming for anybody like you know brian lee o'malley scott pilgrim is a huge success and his lines are always like a thousand people long and that's super stressful to watch at that line while you're talking to somebody but in a hotel room like you know five people come in he sits down on the couch and he just starts dealing a scott pilgrim character for them and talking to them and you know five minutes later you know i round people up i go hey time for you to go we got to bring another five people up and we just did that all day and the hotel you know wanted to shut us down but uh i gave him some money and we just kept going that's awesome (laughs) bribes always work i know now i gotta figure out this year's at arscon i don't know Uh, that's tricky all right all right so i wanted to know if anyone had a question uh thank you so much for doing this no no thanks for having me this is awesome Questions? <laughs> oh, that sounds juicy. Um, the question was, did Fan Expo get uh, litigious about it? Um, yeah, did they want to sue you for ZadarsCon? No, no, but uh, a gentleman that works there did uh, purchase the domain name uh, ZadarsCon.com and rewrite it to Fan Expo and then rerouted it to like... I think it, it got rewritten to a bunch of different things. It got rewritten to an article about like genital warts or something, and then it was funny. But I'm also just like, you work for Fan Expo, so uh, I'm gonna need that domain name back uh, at some point. No, I mean like we were. There was a noise complaint called in to the hotel um, at some point, which is insane because there was no noise, and uh, you know the uh, the paranoid part in the back of my head is like. Fan Expo did yeah. that, didn't they? They do that. They've done it to me. Yeah, they. You know, there's there's a bad history there with that show, uh, with shutting down other shows and anything that kind of competes with it. While I'm not in competition, you know, they still want to make sure theirs are the only game in town. You know, I had guests come through ZadarsCon that were supposed to be at Fan Expo, and they were at Fan Expo, but they would take a couple hours to come over to my little thing. And you know, when they were announced, I got the emails from Fan Expo. Or they got the emails from Fan Expo saying, uh, don't do this. And uh, almost all my friends said, uh, we're going to do it because yeah. it's not a big deal. Like, where, where I go for my lunch, whatever. And, like, you know, there are good people there and there are bad people there, I think. Just like any kind of show. And, you know, my hope is to wait out the bad people. And then, you know, I'll do Fan Expo again uh, properly. Uh, I did, like, a, I did my first signing there last year for, like, an hour or two. But it was on uh, behalf of the, the Legal Defense Fund. So that felt like a thing. Okay, I'll step in here to do that. Um, so we'll see. Like I know, I know uh, there's going to be more reason to bring me there this year because of the Spider-Man book, and they'll probably bring in other members of the team, and it'll be weird for me not to be there. So <laughs> ridiculous demands. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> hamburgers every five minutes brought to me and pushed into my face. Does uh, Does anybody else have a question? All right, sir. What was your biggest challenge on drawing Star-Lord? Um, well, Star-Lord, I wrote Star-Lord and Chris Anka drew it. I guess making it feel different from Howard, because Howard was the only thing I did for Marvel. And because the setups were very similar, I'm like, how do I make this stand out? And tell a complete story within the first six issues, because I knew they were leaving the planet. Howard, I had 16 issues to do the story, basically. And with, with Star-Lord, it was, it, was, it was that six. 
so it became tricky to kind of bring in new characters and uh, create like an emotional connection with everybody um, to have some sort of payoff as the series went on. It's easy in comics to create an emotional payoff with a character that exists. Like if I have Aunt May get hit by a bus, that's going to affect people. Like readers would be like outraged or happy or sad, whatever. If I just create an old lady in one issue and have her hit by a bus in issue two, who cares, right? So the trick with a comic like that, I feel, is to introduce new characters, have them interact with the old characters, and, and build them up to a point where I can hit them with a bus, if that makes sense. Anybody else? Question? Question? Question of the back? Hi, I'm David Bowie. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, of all the characters that you've written, which one do you feel is the most similar to like you, personality-wise? <sighs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, it's weird, because they all kind of tap into different aspects of you, right? Like... Jughead feels like me as a teen. Like, I was a, a bit of a jerk and I kind of made fun of everyone around me. And, you know, um, I kind of thought I was better than the other people. I was also a, like a kind of a late bloomer style character. Character. I just describe myself as a character. <laughs> I was a real boy. When I'm angry, I'm Howard. You know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, when I'm joking around, I feel more like a Peter Parker. So it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to narrow it down to... So it's like different parts of you, I guess. Yeah, and yeah. I think every writer kind of needs to do that where... Or else you don't believe them when they're writing the character. If I'm writing a character that I can't empathize with on some level, even a villain, like if you put a villain in a piece and you have them have a plan, no matter how evil or dastardly that plan, on some level you've got to like believe why they're doing it and kind of empathize with their reasoning behind it. So yeah, so yeah, there's no there's no one specific character, but I think I think with everything that I've done, there's 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 a part of me in each of the characters, if that makes right, sense. Right, so you feel like you're saying more like a part of you rather than telling someone's story? Kind of like, because you said that it was different parts of you, do you feel like you were writing the character and kind of trying to get into the mindset of being that character, or do you feel like you're more telling a story of like, oh, I'm writing about my friend Peter Parker, kind of? Yeah, you're kind of yeah. It's a bit of both. You're getting into the mindset yeah. of the character for sure. Like you've got to look at a character and go, okay, what makes them tick? Um, can I also right. be that character for a while uh, <laughs> to tell the story? Ultimately, you're trying to tell like a story, so it can't just be about like just the one character. <laughs> yeah, you know, you need to conceive of the the world that the characters in and 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 the other people around them. So yeah, it's it's a tricky thing, you know. Um, I often think, you know, after after my run on, you know, Marvel Comics and whatever, the thing that I just create that's just my own, like, is it just going to be me? Like, after doing all these other characters, am I just going to write, like, some sad autobiographical <laughs> comic about my lonely childhood? Like, what's... How do, you, how do you follow up on writing all these other characters that existed before you? And I don't know. And I just don't know. That's fair. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Anyone else? Guy at the back? Yeah, in Sex Criminals, I was wondering how you came up with the look for the quiet, like the uh, uh, energy, yeah. I don't know what you call it. That was actually one of the hardest things to conceive of, because um, when we initially started talking about it, actually on that train trip, Matt was, Matt sent me a video of like kind of a theoretical idea of what happens to light and the perception of light as, as time slows down. It's like, it kind of like shifts along the spectrum, uh, which is super trippy, and that was kind of the, the genesis of it. And then um, Matt also sent me some clips of like some foreign films that kind of dealt with uh, with time and, and and the different kind of colors and effects. And I think the the kind of ribbons kind of came from that. 
And last but not least was J.J. Uh, Abrams' Star Trek. Like, Matt talked a lot about the um, the bridge of the ship. Like, the ship was so bright. Everything would just pop. Like, there were a lot of blues and yellows and reds. And, like, everything just, like... B- apart from the lens flares, things were very dreamy on that ship. So I did maybe, like, five or six versions of that effect. And uh, it takes a while to do. Like, even now, I always have to, like, stop, look at an old file, and kind of figure out how to do it. Because there's, like... 10, 12 kind of Photoshop layers that each kind of handle a different aspect of it. It Originally, the, uh, you know, the bands of light were uh, uh, more uh, fluid-based, if I may say, in <laughs> front of uh, children. Um, <laughs> and then that, that changed over time as well. I've, I've actually dialed it back a bit in the comic itself. There were a few extra effects that kind of took me a bit too long. Uh, kind of like different segments would be blurred out and I kind of stopped with the blur because that added like another half hour per page. I'm like, maybe people can do without the blur. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of back and forth. Like the one interesting thing about that book is the fact that in the credits page, it doesn't say who writes or draws it. Um, it just says Matt and Chip. That's it. Because we influence each other so much in that stuff. Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable just saying that I'm the illustrator and designer because Matt has enough input into that that it feels like he's also helping to design the look of it. And Matt feels the same with the writing because I'm I'm giving story ideas as well and jokes and things that we can't just leave it as, like, sole writer and artist on, on, on the book. Which is, which is, I think, the way, like, most books should be. Saga is like that, too. If you read Saga, Brian K. Vaughn, Fiona Staples, I don't think they have credits for themselves in there either because they both feed off each other. Like it's 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 such a process of working with somebody instead of doing your individual parts and passing it off that it doesn't make sense to be a writer or an artist on a book like that. If that makes sense. That's awesome. Cool. Um, yeah, we're we're at three o'clock, you guys. So right. we want to get the signing started. But uh, thank you so much for coming in, Chip. This has been amazing. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Woo! Yay! This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.